Well, if you take your scriptures, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 5 to 9. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, page 11, 96 and 97 there in your pew Bibles. And as you turn, consider a few of the events that we have endured this week. Two fatal police shootings, one in Louisiana, one in Minnesota. Seven police officers fatally shot with ten wounded. Two civilians also shot. A fourth incident with a policeman ambushed and gunned down in Missouri. Some have pointed to race. There is our problem. Some have pointed to guns. Therein lies our problem. Some have pointed to law enforcement and said therein lies our problem. I would argue vehemently it is none of these. Racism does not exist. We are all one race. We have come from one family. No gun has ever killed anyone on its own. And law enforcement rightly operating does one thing, enforce the law. The problem arises with man. Man creates the unbiblical bias of race as he seeks to exalt himself above another of another skin color. A horror and an abomination to our God and an offense against his word. Man picks up a gun to wrongly shed innocent blood as he again seeks to exalt himself above other men. Man violates the law, either in direct violation of that law or in unlawful enforcement of that law. And in both cases, again, it is man seeking to exalt himself. Self-exaltation, self-aggrandizement. And it's all one thing, beloved. It is sin. It's exactly the opposite of the biblical perspective of personal relationships. And it's times like this where we are brought face to face with horrors and tragedies that tear our hearts out and have us on our knees before these poor families of each of these who have suffered under these horrors of sin that we must recognize that there is an answer. There is a biblical perspective that deals with this. And the events of these weeks are a perfect lead-in for our text because they are completely contrary to God's plan and God's plan is exactly what is described for us in our text this morning. So let's consider a proper biblical approach as it is revealed in our text and in our continuing discussion of this topic, Understanding Biblical Submission as we've titled our message and continue on into the second part today. Understanding Biblical Submission. Look with me, if you would, into the second chapter of Hebrews, beginning in verse 5, as I read our text for us this morning. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man? that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him 
You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Understanding biblical submission. The author continues in his presentation of Jesus' supremacy over the angelic realm in our text this morning. The entire theme of the book of Hebrews has been the exaltation and the expression of Christ's supremacy over everything. So far, we've seen that over the angelic realm in these first two chapters. The book of Hebrews will address eight different areas in which Christ is superior, although we know that in every event, Christ is superior. But the author will bring us these eight arguments, these eight polemics that discuss Christ's superiority, and this, the second longest in the book. In chapter 1, we saw Christ's superiority over the angels as expressed in the superiority of the messenger. We looked at some of the attributes and characteristics of Christ in chapter 1. And now in chapter 2, we see Christ's superiority over the angelic realm that is expressed in the superiority of the message. The first four verses we looked at bring a warning and a command to heed. Verse 1 said, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention so that we don't drift away. All that he's heard, all that we've spoken about regarding the superiority of Christ as the messenger, we must pay attention to because if we don't, we drift away. The events of our country this week are, are not those of Children who grew up and premeditated themselves to commit the atrocities that they participated in this week. It is the, the continual movement away, the continual lack of connectivity to the scripture. Because in God's word it's clear that all that has occurred is absolutely contrary to how he would have us to live. We must understand that if we are those who do not pay that close attention, if we do not carefully anchor ourselves in the word of God and begin to drift away, that we are in danger of neglecting the great salvation that has been given to us. And the scripture tells us there in the first four verses that if we do neglect so great a salvation, that there will be no escape for that. Then in verse 5, we saw the world not being subject to angels. We started this last week and found out that really what the world is subject to is to man. Subjection exempted was our first point that we went over last week. Subjection exempted. 
And it was exempted from the angelic realm. But the earth is subjected to men. And not just the earth, but we notice there from verse 5, it is the world to come. It is that future coming world which has been subjected to man. And then we went back and we looked at chapter 1 and verse 14 and saw that the angels are the ones that are subject to God and the angels' subjection to God is so that they can provide service to those who will inherit salvation, to the believers. Look again with me at verse 14 of chapter 1, just a few verses back. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The glorious angelic realm, the holy angels that worship our Father and that are around Him day and night. Their purpose, beloved, is to serve, to submit to God's authority and His command to serve us. How difficult is that for them to achieve? Do we ever stop and consider what angelic submission looks like? We look in the mirror and think, boy, I blow it every day. And here are these perfect, holy beings that are sent to minister to me? How hard is that to submit to? We spoke last week about some of the areas that Scripture calls us to regarding biblical submission. And yet are any more challenging than that? I'm supposed to go serve them? And the Father says, yes. They are my children. They are the ones who will inherit salvation. And the angelic realm gladly goes about the task of their father. So the angels are not the ones to whom the earth is subject, but rather it is to man. Man is the focus of that subjection in the world to come. And we looked at Romans 8.17 that spoke of that. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, he said, And if children, heirs also... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with, with Him, so that we also may be glorified with Him. If you are here today and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. You are one that is a co heir with Christ. You will inherit on equal plane with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is an inconceivable component. How can he give so much to me? Such a wretch, such a despicable man, so selfish. And yet he promises me a share with Christ. And he promises you a share with Christ. But that is, if indeed we suffer with him, beloved, we'd all be suffering this week as we consider the conditions of our country. A country that is free? A country that promises equality to all men? Is that what we see lived out? This is an offense against our God and our King. This is an offense against anything that is moral or ethical or right. And we ought be on our knees daily pleading to our God pleading for these families, pleading for our law enforcement members, pleading for our country that they would recognize there is one hope and it is Christ. And pleading for the strength to speak because that's what we are called to do. 
It's interesting, that was one of the verses we used this Friday night in speaking with the children from Ukraine. That they too may not have an earthly father or mother, but they have a heavenly father who will adopt them and make them co-heirs with Christ. And we heard a beautiful testimony from a Latvian orphan who's a dear brother and friend of mine regarding that very topic. And in the same way as we are heirs with Christ, we also inherit the world to come. And that world is subject to man and not angels. Last week we also discussed Romans 8 and verse 21. We went through that whole section from Romans 8, 16 to 21. But let me just reread for you Romans 8, 21. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation itself will also be set free from its corruption. What does the corruption of our creation look like today? It looks like our precious blood absorbing the blood of those slain. As the Lord first confronted Cain and said, what have you done the earth cries out with the blood of your brother. Our earth is crying out from the corruption that is about it. But it one day will be delivered. There one day will be freedom, free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Our world to come will be subject to us as we are the children of God, and it is His glory which we must reflect. Those who are His true children, that is. And in the same way, the earth is subject to man. And it is because of this glorious truth that Hebrews 2.5 tells us we must speak. It says at the end of the verse, concerning which we are speaking. There's an ongoing effort. There's an ongoing expression. There's an ongoing proclamation of faith by those who are the children of God that we are His and that this which is going on is not acceptable and that we will not stand by. That we will not walk away. That we will not cast dispersion on another person because of their skin color. That we will not allow these events to go on and to just simply move away from a conversation as some may place blame on race, place blame on guns, place blame on law enforcement. Place blame upon yourself. For the cause is sin and we are all sinners and we are all separated from God. We must speak of these things. 2 Corinthians 4.13 says... But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. Therefore we all speak. And this is true of every believer. Part of the ongoing confession of Romans 10.9, that, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That, if you, that confession is an ongoing action. Yes, it is our initial proclamation that Jesus Christ is my Lord. It is a profession in the waters of baptism where you are immersed and acknowledge that you are a sinner and desirous of coming alongside of Jesus Christ. 
being buried into the sins of your life and raised again to move forward in a newness of Christ. But it is that ongoing speech is carrying forth this message. It is talking to the world around us because the world to come is not in subjection to angels, beloved, but it is to man. Notice one other component that is so vital of our first point, subjection accepted. Notice the agent of the subjection in verse 5. For he did not subject angels. The world to come is subject to man, but, but who is making it subject? Is it man? Are we subjecting the world to ourselves? That's what's going on in our world this week. Man is subjecting the world around them to himself, exalting himself as supreme. Hasn't worked out real well. No, it is Christ. It is God who has done the subjection. We see this, of course, with the capitalization of the word he. And if we go back from verse 5 to the nearest antecedent, which as good Bereans we know to do when we see a pronoun, it carries us back to verse 4. And it is God, it is God the Father who is subjecting these things, not man. This is a vital point. It is God who does the subjecting, not man. Well, this was subjection exempted. And then in verse 6 is our second point, subjection expected. In verses 6 to 7, subjection expected. In verse 6, it begins with this unique reference. Look at it there in verse 6a. But one has testified somewhere saying. And you remember we talked last week about how there's this climax that's being built. The author is drawing us in as if the beginning of, of a wonderful love story and there's this tremendous relationship and, and we're being pulled into the plot. So also here, the complexity of the language in verse 5 doesn't clearly state that man is the one who is subject to the world to come or that the world is subject to. Just that angels are not. And we have to ask and we have to look and we have to kind of put on our, 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 uh, our sleuth hat and, and, and look a little more deeply, get out our magnifying glass and understand what's going on. And that builds this climax. It builds this energy and it builds this desire to see what's going on. And so also in verse 6a, where it says, one has testified somewhere saying. Some commentators have said, well, that means that whoever wrote Hebrews didn't know where the scripture came from and didn't know who said it. That is the most preposterous thing I can possibly consider. That God, the Holy Spirit, first off wrote the scripture. Amen? He used men, first period, or Second Peter 1, 21, as he deemed fit to bring forth the word of God. So what is going on? Why does he do this? Okay, we've mentioned that it's meant to bring a climax. That's great. I like that. I like being drawn into the text. But what else is happening here? What's happening here is he is proclaiming that he doesn't need to say who wrote this text. He doesn't need to quote where this text is from because it would be so well known. His audience would understand keenly where this came from. There would be no question in their mind. They not only knew where the scripture came from, they knew the author 
This is a very common means of referral in Hebrews. In Hebrews 4 and verse 4, the same thing happens. It's significant to us today, beloved, because this is an exhortation to us as believers. Do we know the word so well that when it is read, it immediately starts to kick our minds into gear? You know, I, I have loved it. I don't know, maybe it's just the Lord in this particular time, but several of you in the last couple of weeks have come up to me and said, yeah, I, I'm, reading, I'm reading in Leviticus chapter 2, or I'm reading in Acts here. I love to hear that. Not just because I want an update that you're reading your Bible. I want to interact with you about that. I want to hear what's going on in your life. I want to hear how the scripture's impacting you. I pray that as I'm preaching, other scriptures are coming to mind because if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, they are. And I'm not bringing it all. I couldn't possibly bring it all. So I hope you're writing them down. And I hope you're doing a little reading. And then I hope when you run into me on Wednesday night or somewhere and say, Pastor, I was, I was reading this and wow, I, I didn't even see this. This is so great. Or what about this, Pastor? You know, this doesn't quite seem right to me. I love those kind of interactions. But this ought to challenge us. How about our Bible reading? Because not only would I hope you'd be sharing it with me, but sharing it with those around you. What an encouragement it is. Say, so, you know, I... I was reading this, and, and I do it often because it seems like every time I read the Bible, and you know, as, as my dear brother Tom likes to say, I've read it through once or maybe twice, and, um, and every time there's something new. Every time something enlivens my heart. And I'm like, I never saw that before. I, I, I read the book of Acts as part of my Bible reading every month. Every time I read it, there's something else. I'm like, how did that jump in there? Why? Because it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it is unlike those who might pick a text and proof text. I had a wonderful opportunity this week. I was in the office on Thursday afternoon. We got a phone call. Somebody wanting to speak to the pastor. Okay, I guess that's me. Not going to be able to pass this one up on, off on Tom. He's on the phone, so I'll take it. And, and the man calls and he goes, I, w I want to talk to you about the Trinity. He goes, how is it that you believe that God is three persons in one? When if you go to John 17, 3, it talks about God being the Father and, and Jesus Christ is giving him the glory. So how do you figure that Jesus Christ is also God? Well, immediately I knew where this was coming from. I've dealt with these kind of questions once or twice. And so I said, you know, sir, I appreciate your call and tried to get a little information, which he was not forthcoming. And, and I, I said, you know, the, uh, the scripture speaks often about one or two persons of the Trinity and, and leaves one or two out. And that does not mean that they are any less part of the Trinity. It's just the way that scripture works. We have to know the whole corpus of God's word so that we understand these components of the Trinity. And I said, in fact, let me take you to Isaiah 48, 16. Wonderful place for you to go when you run into a conversation with a Jehovah or a Mormon. Because in Isaiah 48, 16 is one of the wonderful and clear Old Testament references to the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit all mentioned in one verse. And he immediately piped back, that's not talking about the Trinity. And I went, okay. He said, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of busy. I'd love to take your phone number. I'll call you. But you can't have my phone number. I'm at work. So we must understand that we too can have that proof texting background, but not if we're continually seeking the depth of the word of God. I love to be in the Bible studies. We rotate around the studies because I love hearing the interaction between the teachers and the classes. And I pray that you're doing this. 
Well, verse 6 continues with this quote of Psalm 8, understanding that they would all know that it's from Psalm 8. And I want you to turn to Psalm 8 with me. Page 555 in your scriptures, Psalm chapter 8. And in Psalm 8, David is bringing this most beautiful exaltation of God, which is where these next verses from Hebrews are taken from. In the Psalms, we have this, tra this, this transition that's moving through these first chapters. Psalm 1 and 2 speaking about the godly and the wicked. And then he goes on as he is discussing in, in Psalms 3 and 4 about his prayer for trust in God. His prayer for protection from the wicked in verse 5. Prayer for mercy in times of trouble. Prayer to be defended against the wicked in Psalm 7. And then in Psalm 9, this thanksgiving for God's justice. Davidic Psalms that have this flow to them. Wickedness, protection, darkness, justice. And then here in the middle we have Psalm 8. This beautiful picture of the exaltation of God. Let's look at it together. Look at the first couple verses, the first section, if you will, of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. The, the superscription at the beginning of the psalm says, for the choir director on the Giddith, a psalm of David. That's just speaking about uh, who the psalm was to, the musical instrumentation or key. And then gives us the author, a psalm of David. All of these original to the text and important components. You see them in regular type in your Bibles and not in italics or bold, indicating that they are part of the original Hebrew scriptures. And the psalm begins the very same way that Psalm 110 begins, which we discussed a few weeks ago. O Lord, our Lord. Two different words for Lord, Yahweh and Adonai, are being expressed there. Again, exactly the same as Psalm 110, which we saw was absolutely messianic. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. The God of steadfast love, of loyal love. The one who loves us with, an, with a love that is beyond consideration. The New Testament correlation of that which tells us that we love because he first loved us. And then there is Adonai, the one who is master, the one who is Lord. The whole discussion that went on back in the late 70s and early 80s between John MacArthur and Dallas Theological Seminary over lordship salvation. Can I proclaim Jesus Christ as my savior and pray a prayer and accept him and then live a life not making him my lord? Foolishness. Of course you cannot. He is Lord. He is Adonai. You cannot receive his saving grace without living according to his word. So these are the two characteristics and vital that we understand those components of the one who is master and the one who is the loving, covenant-keeping God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. The exaltation of God begins and ends this psalm. The focus in this psalm is that second term for Lord there in your Bibles. Notice the way that it transitions. There's a comma behind the second word Lord and then we have a new line. 
That's because in the Hebrew text, there is a clear designation of emphasis on the word master. He is our master. We are his slaves. Subject to him and him alone. The one who is benevolent, the one who is all love, the one who gives us all things and the glory that it is to be in that position. He is the ruler. And it returns us to our thoughts of Romans 10.9. Not only is there a continuous expression of speaking, but there is the believing. If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Both confessing and believing are ongoing verbs. They're continuous verbs that believing, beloved, must be expressed in your obedience to the word of God. And that obedience reflects him as master and Lord. He is the majestic one. The, the, the word here, majestic, is a word that it could also be translated mighty or excellent, splendid and beyond consideration. He is the one who is amazing. How majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. The subject of the second stanza is God's splendor. The idea of this word is his majesty or his divine grandeur and that it's been set on display for us above all of the heavens. It's not that it's literally like in the heavens, although that we understand God to dwell in heavens, but it's as though the heavens are the highest thing. The heavens are the thing that is out of reach from man, of which man has always desired to see. Are we not yet still trying to go to Mars, trying to go to, I don't know, what other planet next? Because we marvel at the heavens, but God's splendor has been displayed above all of those for all to see. Some translate this as glory, but it is really even more than that. The translation here is literally height. We could, we could translate this last stanza, who set your height upon the heavens? Your height, Father, which is higher than anything else. Your splendor and your divine majesty are seen by all. Is this not what Roman or what Psalm 19 tells us? That the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork and day to day pouring forth speech. Or Romans 1 that tells us that God has revealed himself on the hearts of every man. We all know, we all see that God is God and there is no other. Such a glorious presentation for us to understand this component. The word splendor is also used in Psalm 21 and verse 6. And you see there that there's a very definite messianic connection. So also in Zechariah 6.13. Above the heavens is, an, is again an idiomatic frame, phrase and it means just again not in heavens but above everything superior to all. And then in verse 2, it gives us an illustration of that majesty. I hope you're asking a question here like, how do babies reveal splendor? How do they, I mean, they're cute and they're wonderful, but how do they reveal the splendor of God? How do they reveal the majesty of God? How do they reveal the power of God? Some commentators have said, well, what's being talked about here are these children that are 10 to 12 years old, and it's a, a reference forward to Matthew 21, 15, where at the Lord's triumphal entry, the children are crying out, Hosanna in the temple. 
Well, that's a wonderful thought, but that's not what the text says. Because it's talking about, in verse 2, from the mouths of infants and nursing babes. These are children that don't even speak that are declaring that. Literally those who suckle. How can these establish strength if they don't speak? Because their strength is in the Lord. They're perfectly suited for their needs. Nursing. Their tongues work perfectly for that. Their mouths perfectly work for that. They are designed for that one task. That's their main job. And this great vulnerability, beloved, reveals the majesty of the Lord. It reveals his perfect creation. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.9, power is perfected in weakness. Even the wrathful enemies of God can be struck down by infants in the strength of the Lord. Because they are under his divine protection. And those who are prideful or vengeful, they'll be struck down by infants. It takes us back to think of some of God's victories, doesn't it? How about, how about God's victory with Gideon? 30,000, too many, prune it down. 300, all right, let's get some pitchers and let's get some candles and let's get some trumpets and go to war. That sounds like a good plan, said no one ever. And yet he routes the army in the path. I love it, you know, the, the children of Israel under Joshua have gone forward in strength and they have defeated a number of different armies in different battles. And the Lord says, this time I want you to go to the edge of the meadow and I want you to stop. And when you hear the roaring in the trees and the army of God comes raining over the children of Israel onto their enemies on the far side of the battlefield and routs them. And will we ever forget the 185,000 Assyrians with the angel of the Lord slew in one night? We think that we are strong when God is with us and we are. But never are we as strong when God is moving alone and we recognize we are nothing without him. The majesty and power of God are displayed in the weakness of men, even in the greatest weakness of suckling infants. The psalmist uses this counterintuitive example to display God's splendor in this first section. And then in the second section, he uses a more conventional example in verse 3. Look at that with me. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Now we're drawn to consider the physical heavens, the dwelling of the moon and the stars. God referenced the stars to Abraham. Do you remember that? He said, count the stars if you are able. Your offspring shall be more numerous than they. Job marveled at the stars in Job 22.12. And in Job 22.12, he said, is not God in the heights of heaven? Look also at the distant stars, how high they are. They've always marveled us. We have always awed at the creation of them. And then he contrasts the majesty of the heavens with what it took God to create them. Not with his mighty outstretched arm, which Isaiah often talks about. Not with his powerful hand, but with his finger. It took but your finger, Father, 
to lay these stars. How powerful are you that the works of your fingers are the moon and the stars which you have ordained? Incredible for us to understand this. And having established the majesty of God in both great and small things, David now turns in verse 4 to our text which is quoted in Hebrews 2.6. Psalm 8.4. Take a look at verse 4 with me. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now there's some variation of opinion that goes on at this point commentators in in some particular groups would say these reflections are only of man this is not a reflection on the deity of Christ others would say no these are clearly a reference that is pointing to Christ and we'll unpack a little of that in a minute. John Owens won on that side, and I believe that he is correct. For when we look at verse 4, the first word for man is a, a somewhat rare word in the Old Testament. And it is explaining the frailty of man, the weakness of man, and rejoicing that there is thought taken of him, or literally that he is remembered. But then the son of man that you care for him, Keep in mind, we are considering the context in Hebrews 2.6. When you think of the New Testament reflection of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ is the first one that comes to our minds. Stephen is the only other one in the New Testament that is referenced as the Son of Man. And in the Old Testament, only the prophet Ezekiel. But without a doubt, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that is the overwhelming reference to the Son of Man. And we've already established back in verse 1 that there was the parallel of Psalm 110, a messianic psalm. And the word splendor and its messianic ties. But as strong as these are, there is still more. The picture of a man is what is expressed in the first part of the stanza. But what happened with man? Man fell. And so also in the context of Psalms and, and David's condition, remember we expressed the context of David. He's struggling. He's got the wicked all about him. He, these Psalms are likely written when he is in the cave, being chased by Saul, when his life is questionable at best, he and the men that are with him. He is in a, in a desperate condition. And so he sees the weakness of man. And recognizes that it is God who is strength, who is God who has delivered. And it is the Son of Man that ultimately is being focused on here. The Son of Man, again, almost always Christ. And there's this contrasting parallelism, which is a very common mechanism in the Psalms. Man, the weak man, and the Son of Man, who was the man who would be God. Verse 5 has more conclusive evidence of Messiah. In the first stanza, it says, you have made him a little lower than God. Those who would argue to say that this is a man would say, how can this be Christ? The, in the New Testament, in Hebrews, our passage says, you have made him a little lower than the angels. The, the Hebrew construction would allow for that translation, and, and either are acceptable. God is what has been put in here. But it seems likely that this connectivity to making him a little lower, you see little in this context means that there was a place of great exaltation and then there was a short time, a little while, where he was made lower than God. 
Those who would argue with this is, that this is a man have to come up and say, how is all of creation since the Garden of Eden until today a little while? That is a very long time that man has been reduced versus the Son of Man who was brought down for a short period to live amongst us those 30 years. The second stanza talks about him being crowned with glory and majesty or glory and honor. Man was initially crowned with glory and honor. In the initial creation in Genesis 1.28, when God said, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all of the creatures of the earth. But very quickly he lost that dominion when he fell in sin. And this is what we see being referenced in the rest of these. Another aspect of that second stanza as we look at, uh, at verse 6 says, You make him to rule over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. All things are put under man's feet with regards to the earth. But what have we just seen referenced? The stars and the moon, the, the heavenly realms, those are never delineated in Scripture as being under man's feet or under man's control. Only the Son of Man has control over the heavenly realms. And then in verses 7 and 8, they elaborate on this aspect of that over which he rules over the sheep and oxen and beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes through the seas. Isn't it interesting that he starts the list off with sheep? He rules over the sheep because he is the good shepherd. Were a man writing this, were this David's conception, he most likely would have started with the most massive the animals, the beasts of the field or the cattle, and then moved to the sheep and then on. But no. I think another expression showing us that it is the Son of Man as God. And it concludes with those on the pathways of the sea. I wish we had time to get into this. What else might move in the sea other than the fish? Well, go into your lexicons and go back and look into your Bibles at the end in the concordances and look up the word Leviathan. Use six times and read the description of it. That massive creature, Job 41 particularly describes it throughout the, almost the entire chapter and it is a powerful expression. What else moves in the sea? Things which we might not know a lot about but God knows about all of them. And then David returns to his exaltation in verse 9 from which he began. It is a glorious picture of God's exaltation. And it is amazing that he would consider man amidst all of this. And so much more the son of man who would be the fulfillment of all that would occur. Considering that exaltation of God and the focus of this, turn back with me now to Hebrews chapter 2. And let's re-examine our text in light of this in Hebrews 2 in verses 5 through 9. We see the quotations again almost identically translated in verse 6, 7, and 8. With the exception of verse 7, you have made him a little while, for a little while lower than the angels. We discussed that. But look on ahead with me down to verse 9. But we do not see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. 
direct reflections back to the previous section. Clearly Christ is the one who is fulfilling. As man has fallen in his role and is not able to be the one ruling over creation, Christ is the one who does rule, who is ruling, and who we will be fellow heirs with. Incredible to understand the way God is bringing this fulfillment and confirms our assessment and it fully expresses the idea of subjection expected. The main aspect is what we discussed from verse 5, namely who is the one doing the subjugation? Is man making the world to come subject to himself? Of course not. It is God and particularly God as Christ Jesus. And this transitions us to our third point, subjection accepted. Subjection accepted. Let me just read verses 8 and 9 for you quickly. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjection, subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Well, we'll return next week to examine the nuances of those verses, but consider the implications. Why are we in such a mess in our country? Because we have a wrong idea of submission. It isn't a little wrong. It's radically wrong. We have nothing that we can bring to exalt ourselves. We, we are absolutely useless apart from God. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags done apart from God. So will we attempt to exalt ourselves Will we attempt to exalt ourselves over someone of another race? Will we attempt to exalt ourselves by buying a gun and forcing ourselves upon another? Or defying law enforcement? This is as radically wrong as it could be. But that's what our world is about. We're all about self-exaltation. We're all about self-imposed power and authority. The guy with the biggest weapon wins, right? Or the one quickest to use it. Beloved, where does humility come in? Where does a consideration that all lives matter? That all people are made in the image of God. And that when one kills another, he is removing the image of God and God's fingerprint from this earth. Do we consider that? Where does submission come in? Beloved, this is all about the exaltation of God. It's about the exaltation of Christ. This is the message. This is the answer. 1 Peter 5.6 is a verse that we ought all consider carefully. In Peter's first epistle in chapter 5 and verse 6, he writes, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Not self-exaltation. Not self-aggrandizement. Look again at the actors in Hebrew 2, 6 through 8 or should I say actor. 
verse 6. What is man that you remember him? That ye, verse 6b, that you are concerned about him. You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And you have appointed him over the works of your hands. And you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Father, it is you. <laughs> you are the only one. You are all that we have. You are our hope and our sway. You are our stead. You are our only comfort. Beloved, this is what this is all about. It is God, it is He who is to be exalted. How often do we place ourselves in God's place each week, even as believers? How often we negate His word in how we live our lives and live as practical atheists, live as kings in our own self-made world, as we make His law say whatever we want it to. Let me tell you something. We do it every time we sin. We do it every time we don't speak about what is right. When we ignore and walk away from a conversation, a discussion about all of this violence because I'm too busy or I don't want to get intertwined or I don't want to deal with these angry, unbelieving people, be it at work, at the store, at a restaurant, Beloved, we each know that these are the places we must speak. James 4.17 says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Beloved, I'm right with you in this. I fall short every day. I struggle to engage, to press myself in areas because I'm afraid. But let's change. Let's begin to speak. Let's rightly exalt our God. Let's recognize that we will reign one day with Him. But that we must not wait until that day to make Him Adonai. To make Him Master. To make Him Lord of our lives. We cannot wait until the end of our lives to rightly exalt him. Because if we do, we are neglecting so great a salvation. And we will not escape, as we've already seen in Hebrews. For those that do, again, there will be no escape. Because what does it tell us? Every transgression and disobedience receives a just penalty. Beloved, we don't want to incur that penalty. If you try to pay for that which Christ alone can pay, you shall pay for it for all eternity. It is Christ and Christ alone that we must exalt. He must be everything in our lives. We must continue to preach the gospel to ourselves and be transformed every day because every day is a new attack by the enemy, a new attack by the world, a new attack by our flesh, and we must win but it is only by the word of God. It is only by exalting him to his proper place and submitting to him, voluntarily putting ourselves under his headship in every realm. Only in that way will we fight the horror of our world today. And when we fight in that way, we will be yet more effective than that suckling infant 
because we will be fighting in the power of the Most High God. Let us go out today in that power and speak. Speak.